Amen. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be with you and for Dave and Bob and Ron and all you guys that have helped lead. Thank you for that. And thank you to the church. You all have a wonderful facility, and I know you know that. But uh, just a beautiful place to come worship and a wonderful fellowship of people. And so uh, I've enjoyed it. I was talking with uh, Ron this afternoon, and the thing that I miss most about pastoring is, uh, is the fellowship. And, you know, I'm in a different church every Sunday, and I had, uh, it's funny, I had one of my in-laws, everybody's got that brother-in-law, don't you? You know, we don't name them by name, it's just that brother-in-law. We all have that brother-in-law. Yeah, you, we, you know, and he came up to me and he goes, well, how is it you're not preaching anymore? <laughs> number one, I said, you don't understand what I do. But number two, I said, man, I'm preaching more now than, than I was when I was pastoring just about because I do, like this, a lot of revivals, a lot of conferences and things. So I'm, I'm preaching uh, not only on Sundays but several days during the week a lot of times. So uh, the preaching part, I'm thankful and I'm honored because that was the one thing I was afraid that, that I wouldn't get a lot to do. And, and I love to preach and so... Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to come and, and do a revival like this. But what I miss the most is, is the fellowship. And uh, not being, uh, I, I was in, I'm in a church, you know, I'm a member of a church, and I told them, I said, I'm going to be the worst church member ever. In fact, when we joined that church, we had to join by video. <laughs> Believe it or not, because I did not have a Sunday where I was not going to be somewhere for months. And we needed to join a church. I needed to be part of a local body of believers. And so uh, I met with the pastor and we talked. And, and uh, so it was unique for them. They'll probably, they've never done that before, probably will never do it again. But it was kind of unique that we actually joined the church uh, by video. And I told them, I said, I'm going to be the worst church member you'll, you'll ever have because I'm never going to come. But we will send our tithe. And But we do it online. I don't even go to the church to take my tithe. We do it online. So, I mean, I, the only time I'm ever at my home church now is when I'm invited to, to preach, when uh, he schedules me to come preach uh, at the church. So it's kind of it's, it's an, a different dynamic uh, for me. So uh, I appreciate the fellowship. Don't ever, don't ever take for granted the fellowship that your church has. That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, the beauty of being in Christ and being around Christian people and developing the friendships that you have is just an incredible part of, of the church. And, and so as one who doesn't get, get to partake of that very often, uh, I, I miss that. So what I've enjoyed, Dave, is being able to preach to the same folks every night. And uh, that's a that's a blessing too. I miss that part of the ministry where you're preaching to the same people every week and getting to see lives changed and transformed and and that kind of thing. So again, thank you for the opportunity to uh, come and, and preach to you these these evenings and and uh, for Sunday morning. And it is my prayer that I know this is the last night of the revival that's been set aside as nights for the revival, but it's my prayer for you that the revival doesn't end. That this is just the beginning for you and what God's going to do in your church in the days and weeks and, and months ahead. And 
I hope Ron and I can stay in touch with each other because I want to hear what God does with, with Moundsville Baptist and what God's going to do in this place. You have such a strategic opportunity. Uh, just where you're located, the leadership that you have, uh, what your past has been, and the history and the legacy of your church. There's just so many things that God can do with you and do through you, and so don't don't forget that, and uh, remind you know be reminded of that, and that's really kind of where I want to go with the message tonight of of, of an encouragement about about the future. Uh, one of the things that uh, Southern Baptist, I'll brag on on my my clan uh, that have been very much involved in is in disaster relief. Uh, when uh, the president invited. Uh, the three primary groups that have been handling disaster relief in our nation to the White House. He invited the the head of the American Cross, the head of the Salvation Army, and the leader of disaster relief for Southern Baptists. And that's huge. When there's three individuals invited to the White House, and one of them is is uh, who heads up disaster relief, uh, the dis- disaster relief organization we have for Southern Baptists, and so. Uh, very proud of, of what's been going on and the literal thousands of volunteers that we've sent uh, to Texas, to Florida, the hundreds of volunteers that came to West Virginia. And you may not know that, but there were uh, 16 other state conventions connected with Southern Baptists that came to work in West Virginia when the flooding happened in the southeastern part of the state, when the flooding happened nearby here. We have hundreds of volunteers that are, uh, our guys are working in hundreds, I'd mention that, in, in, in those areas. And so uh, you may not know who they are, but we literally have hundreds of people here. Uh, we had set up a disaster relief unit at our office that met for a year uh, after the flood happened in uh, southeastern West Virginia and uh, worked out of that office. We had... Uh, training that went on, we were feeding, we fed, I think at last count it was like 150,000 meals, uh, what we provided for people. Uh, my convention has spent several hundred thousand dollars uh, just here in West Virginia in, in doing uh, mud outs and rebuild and those kinds of things that are necessary in getting through and helping with the other things that go on with, with disaster relief. And so it's, it's an important partnership that all of us have that when a crisis happens, the Christian community comes together. And, and we work together to not only help people in the midst of the crisis, but to be able to share the gospel. Uh, one of our churches uh, that's in uh, the southeastern part of the state had, uh, you know, different families that attended and and I know, Ron, you, you know, have had this. They had one family that attended that was kind of uh, nominal in their attendance. Uh, they had a, uh, the, their oldest uh, child, little girl, was a, was a middle schooler. And, and so she attended, you know, youth functions every once in a while. And, and it was one of those kind of things that it would be so easy to forget about them. They, they weren't, you know, it wasn't kind of the kind of family when they walk in, they just kind of run the show and take over and everybody knows who they are, just a quiet family, but sort of nominal in their attendance. But there was a, a couple in the church. They, they didn't have a youth pastor. They had a, a couple that volunteered to work with the students. 
And this couple decided that they were not going to give up on these students. And they had the very active students, but they then had a, a little girl like this that, that was not always there and wasn't one that you would ever put into any kind of leadership or anything like that. But they said, we're not going to give up on her. And there were times they would invite her to something and she wouldn't come and they wouldn't see her for a few weeks. But they said, we're not, we're not giving up on her. Well, they invited her to a, a, a youth event that happened on the weekend. And it was during that weekend she gave her heart to Jesus. About six months later, the church did a baptismal service. And the reason is they didn't have a baptistry, so they waited till the water warmed up enough where they could go out and do a, a, a baptismal service. And so about six months later, she was baptized. Two weeks after that, the flooding in southeastern West Virginia happened. And if you know anything of the story of, of the flooding that happened there, the reason why it was so devastating was what uh, meteorologists say is that there were two major storm cells that met and kind of collided, and because they were so full of, of water, they could not climb over the mountain. And so they literally began to, these two storm cells together began to dump just a torrent of rain and water onto the mountain. So it was not just that the, the rivers and the, and the creeks uh, overflowed, but literally there was water pouring off of these mountains. And there were houses being swept uh, that weren't anywhere near a creek, but they were swept off their foundation because so much water was coming off the mountains. Well, their house was near a creek, and the water uh, rose. It, uh, some of the testimonies that I heard and people that I interviewed and talked with, it was amazing that literally within a matter of minutes, the water went from a little six-inch creek to being, you know, eight feet over its banks. And this happened in, in the neighborhood where they lived, in the area where they lived, and the, and the house began to fill with water. And so in a panic, the father grabbed his children and his wife and did what he could. And the only thing he could find was an electrical cord. And he wrapped it around himself and his wife and his children. And he began to lead them out as that, that torrent of water was just flowing through their house and, and flowing uh, through the area. And when he got them to safety, she had somehow gotten untangled from the cord and was swept away by the waters. It was about a month later that they found her body, and they did a, a funeral for her. And the good news out of that was that there were several of her, her friends, schoolmates, and, and family members that came to faith in Christ as a result of, of her death, but also the fact of the testimony. But the thing that struck me most out of all of that story was that couple. Because here was a couple who said, we're not giving up on someone. We are so concerned about their spiritual condition that there's no one that is unimportant in the eyes of God. And therefore, we're going to do whatever we need to do to love her and to give her the gospel, to give her the opportunity to be able to find Christ and to know Him as Savior. Well, the question I asked out of that is, how do we gain that same kind of missional perspective? And I use the word missional. That may be a new word for you. Because most of the time we talk of missions. 
But when we talk of missions, we think of missions in a passive sort of way. It is something that others do. It is a program of the church. We do a mission trip, and there are those that go to be on that mission trip, and they go on the mission trip, and then they come home, and we hear about what God did. But it's more programmatic in, in how we understand it. But see, God has not called us to a life of programming. God has called us to a lifestyle of mission. That all of us are called to be on mission with Him. And that's why I use the word missional, because it's more active. It's not just something that we think about when we're here on Sunday night or here on Wednesday night or Sunday morning. It's not just something that we talk about when we have a missions conference or a, a missions meeting. But it is something that we think about that everywhere that we go and everything that we do, we have this mindset and this concept that everywhere that we are, there are people who are lost, who don't know Jesus. Yes, there are people on the other side of the world who don't know Christ, and we need to be going there. But there are people right here in Moundsville who don't know Jesus. You know, people that you guys go to school with every day that don't have a relationship with Christ. People that you guys work with every day that don't have a relationship with Christ. Doing evangelism now is so much tougher than it used to be. You know, there, there was the time, you remember the days when you know, using revival as an example, you would just set aside a week of revival and, and everybody would show up. Everybody in the community would show up. Nowadays, you have a revival, you can't even get your own church members to show up, much less, you know, anybody else to show up. I mean, that's just how, how life is. I, I remember when I left here Sunday morning and I, I was driving, uh, driving to Tridelphia, there's the ball fields there on Interstate 470, right on the right. All right, it was... It wasn't quite 1 o'clock. We're passing by there. They are already having baseball games going on. Now, that's not a criticism. That's everywhere. That's not a criticism of Moundsville. That's just, that's life. And you wonder why evangelism is so difficult. It is because the church, in a lot of ways, we've lost our witness. In a lot of ways, culture has just ignored who we are, where it's not anymore where we can just say, you know, here we are as the church, you come and hear about Jesus. That's not how we do evangelism anymore. It used to work like that. I remember the days at my church where I I pastored in Lexington where, you know, we'd just go knock on doors and it was so effective. It, It got to a point where that not only became ineffective, but it actually became a hindrance to the gospel. People did not want you coming to their house unannounced to talk about anything, much less Jesus. And so we look at where the world is and, 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 and how in some ways antagonistic the world is toward Christ, especially our families. Don't raise your hand. Have you got family members antagonistic toward Jesus, towards you as a Christian? It's tough sometimes. And so what we often do as believers is we kind of climb into our little shell, our spiritual shell. And we forget about the fact that the reason why God has left us here on this earth is to be missional. To be about the mission of bringing people to Jesus. 
I want you to look at your Bibles at uh, Luke chapter 5. I want to begin reading at verse 17. And let me give you a little bit of background to the text so you'll understand what's going on. Jesus has just finished His first tour of Galilee. You remember, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. But when He declared His public ministry, He moves to the region called Galilee. Galilee was, uh, you know, there's, there was the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and a region there to the north that actually went into uh, the areas of where beyond where Judaism and where the Jews, uh, the nation of Israel was, and, and actually Tyre and Sidon and, 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 you know, the region of Lebanon, that area. But he finishes this first tour of Galilee. And he comes back to his home base. His home base is called Capernaum. That's the name of the city. It's a village. It's not an old town. It's kind of interesting. It was uh, started about 200 B.C., so it's not a really old village, not like, a lot of, like, not like Jericho and other places like that that had been around for a long, long time. It wasn't that old of a village. Uh, the, the word Capernaum literally means the village of Nahum. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Kafar Nahum, the village of Nahum. Now, it would be a neat thing if it was named after the prophet Nahum, you know, but it's not. It's some, some guy... Uh, named uh, Nahum, and he started a 7-Eleven there, and, and so they, you know, houses started being built around it, and, and they named it the village of, of Nahum, uh, is kind of how the place was. Well, uh, Simon Peter lives there, and uh, Jesus has set up shop there in Capernaum. Now, the reason is because Capernaum was a place where a lot of people gathered if you look at your map, you, at, at the end of, of your Bible, most Bibles, you'll have, uh, you know, maps like that. And you can uh, kind of look at it later uh, to kind of see. But the way that, that Capernaum, where, where it was located, is that to the south you had the Egyptian Empire. And then to the north you have the Roman Empire. To the east you had what would... What we know is uh, Iraq and, or I'll pronounce it correctly, Iraq and Iran, but I'm from the south. It's Iraq and Iran. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just I can't help myself. Uh, <laughs> my wife's an English teacher, and every time I preach, she just sits there and cringes, you know, because <laughs> you know, I slaughter the king's English. <laughs> but to the east, you, you've got uh, the, the former Babylonian Empire, uh, Persian Empire. And so you've got all of the main roads that you would go between all of those empires all converged in Israel. See, people wonder, why in the world would God call this little sliver of land the promised land? Why would He send them to this little sliver of land? It is because everyone who did business and everybody who traveled eventually would travel through Israel. The king's highway that comes out of Egypt that goes to Rome goes right through Israel. The way of the, of the, the uh, 
Via Morris, the way of the sea, is another highway that travels up the Mediterranean Sea and it crosses over and connects in with the King's Highway. And then you have the, the way of the patriarchs that comes out of Jerusalem and it connects in. And then all of these roads connect and converge into Capernaum. It's why Matthew set up his tax station. Remember Matthew that Jesus called to be one of his disciples. All right, He was a tax collector in Capernaum. So, Jesus has has finished His first tour there of Galilee. He's back at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. You can read some of the other Gospels that talk about His mother-in-law and and how she got sick and those kind of things. So, they're at His mother-in-law's house there in Capernaum. Simon probably has taken over the fishing business of his father-in-law. Uh, There are many scholars that believe that probably his father-in-law died fishing. It was a very dangerous business uh, to be a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. We're not talking about, you know, you have an 80-foot yacht and you're out there with your rod and reel catching a few fish. I mean, it was a very dangerous business. No one knows for sure, but that's some of the speculation. But what we do know is that Simon Peter is a fisherman. Originally, he was from Bethsaida, and now he's in Capernaum, and he is uh, a fisherman. Jesus has set up shop there. So here's, here's how Luke introduces us. He says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching. Now you understand that, Art. He's finished this tour. He's been teaching and healing and ministering and speaking. So on one of these days that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law, of the law sitting by who had, and notice this, had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, And then I want you to notice this. It says, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That meant anybody and everybody that was there at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house could have their lives changed. The only difference would would be how you would respond to Jesus. Understand tonight that whatever you need God to do in your life, God can do. The, The only difference will be the condition of your heart. Because the presence of God is here. Amen? And so we know that God is here to do something. Well, he says, Behold, men brought on a a bed a man who, who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they couldn't find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and led him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's a really good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Now, understand the point of this story is to introduce us 
to the deity of Jesus Christ. You say, why did Luke include this story? And I don't mean story meaning make-believe story or made-up story. I'm talking about a narrative, a written narrative of what happened in Jesus' life. Why did he include this narrative in his gospel? The reason is because he is introducing us to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is not a God. He's not one of the gods. He is not a lesser God than who God is. He is as much God as God is God. I dealt with this last night. That you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is just as much God as God the Son, who is just as much God as God the Holy Spirit, who is just as much God as God the Father. There's only one God who distinctively reveals Himself in three persons. And so that is the purpose of what what Luke is describing for us. If you go to the Gospel of John, you'll find that the entire Gospel of John, that the defense, the apologetic of what John gives in his Gospel about Jesus is the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Seven different times he identifies specifically where where Jesus performed miracles and John called them signs. He didn't say this was a miracle that Jesus did. He said this is the first sign. Why did he call them signs? The reason is because everything that Jesus did, nothing was arbitrary. Every miracle that he performed, he performed in order to show the world that he was God and that he was Lord over death, he was Lord over sickness, he was Lord over nature, he was Lord over crisis, he was Lord over all of these things, everything he did. And so seven different times, John says, here are the seven signs of the deity of Jesus Christ. Seven different times he introduces Jesus where Jesus uses the personal name of God to identify himself. It is the name I am. He said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then on the eighth time, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am And John says that at that point they sought to kill him because he made himself equal to God. They understood that Jesus was not just declaring that he was a Messiah. There had been Messiahs come and go. But Jesus Christ was claiming to be the Messiah who is God come in the flesh. And so that's why this whole question comes up. That's why they they ask the question, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus says, well, which is easier to do? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you? Any old fool can tell somebody their sins are gone. Doesn't mean they're gone. But so that you'll know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin, I tell you, get up and walk, because only God can heal. And they knew at that moment what Jesus was saying. They understood that. So don't miss the point of this story is to introduce us to the deity of Jesus Christ. But you have to also understand in the Scripture that every time God reveals Himself to us, there is always the human response. Stay with me. There's always the human response. See, it's not just enough that we step back and we say, well, I know Jesus is God, I know that Jesus is Savior, I know Jesus is Messiah, I know Jesus can do all these things. The real question is, how are you responding to that? Again, go back. It said that the power to heal 
was present there because of Jesus. And so there, there has to be that human response. When we understand who Jesus is, it demands of us that we respond to Him. That's where I want to focus tonight. Understanding the deity of Jesus, what is the human response? Well, it goes back then to that question, how, how do we become those missional Christians? See, the story here is about these men... Uh, Mark tells us there were four of them that uh, brought their friend to Jesus. How do we get our friends to Jesus? How do we develop that passion and that missional mindset that says that we as a church, that you as a church, that Moundsville Baptist Church, and that you as an individual believer have that passion, that missional perspective to say, I've got to get my friends to Jesus. Well, let me share with you three things. What I have to share tonight, nothing profound. This is going to be incredibly simple. Nothing profound tonight. If you're going to get your friends to Jesus, the first thing it's going to take is just is simply commitment. Now, I want you to think about that. All right, here's the story. Jesus shows up in Capernaum. Word is spread that, that He's there, and so, man, the crowd has gotten there. So much so that they're standing at the door. Now, you know these four men, uh, the five guys, were Baptists. Because they were late for the service, okay? That's a little side note. I wouldn't preach that anywhere else but here. Uh, Brother Steele, don't uh, throw anything at me. But you know they were Baptists, they were late for the service, okay? And that's just, that's just the Baptist way. Uh, all these kids are Methodists because they're sitting up front. All right. They were late for the service. They try to get in the front door and they can't get in. Now, the selfishness, so you wonder the heart of the people. And you say, well, what about the response? What should have happened is that the moment they saw, here is a man who's paralyzed, probably going to die as a result of his paralysis, I'm assuming. There's a desperation in the heart of these men. There should have been a path that should have spread like the, like the Red Sea so that they could have brought their friend to Jesus, but they were in it for themselves. You wonder why God didn't respond to anybody else? There was an incredible selfishness, I think, that was present there that day. These four men weren't thinking of themselves. They were thinking about their friend. Now, again, here, here's what we would have done. I think if we would have been in that situation in, in, in current life, and we showed up and the door was, was, was full and people were standing outside and wouldn't let us in, we'd have said, well, we'll just go home. Most of us would turn around and go home. When it gets tough to witness, what do we do? We don't do it. We give up. We quit. For example, some of you, every Sunday, used to pray for a family member of yours or a friend of yours to get saved. And it's been a long time since you mentioned their name to God. Because you got discouraged. You said something to them about that you're praying for them, or you tried to share your testimony with them, or you tried to say something about Jesus or about being at church, and they chided you. They rejected you. And... You quit. Well, there's a level of commitment that says, because I'm desperate to get my friends to Jesus. You know, how do we get our friends to Jesus? 
It starts with a commitment that says that I'm going to do whatever it takes and I'm not going to quit until they come to faith in Christ. And so one of the commitments I'm going to invite you to make tonight, if you had, are one of those believers, one of those Christians that used to pray for a friend of yours and you hadn't mentioned them by name, you make a commitment tonight to say, God, every time I'm around you, every time that I'm praying, every time that I'm in church, I'm going to breathe my friend's name to you. I'm going to breathe my family member's name to you until they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to let anything ever discourage me again. So it's just a, a simple level of commitment that says, you know, how are we going to get our friends to Jesus? It's a simple level of commitment to say we're going to do whatever it takes to do it. Second thing it takes. You say, what else does it take? Well, it takes commitment, but it also demands of you cooperation. Right, I want you to think about it. If you've ever carried someone that's passed out, it doesn't matter how much they weigh. When it's, I mean, it's literally dead weight. It is tough to carry somebody that, that has no movement at all. So these four guys show up. And again, the cooperation should have been... I mean, Capernaum, you know, was smaller than Moundsville. So we're not talking about, you know, that this is this, this huge metropolis where they don't know who everybody is. They knew who this guy was. And yet there was no cooperation from the crowd. And you think about it now. It mentions specifically that there were scribes and Pharisees who came from all the villages in, in Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. Imagine that. All of the religious folk show up. I mean, we're not talking about the despicable pagans. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, these are... are the people that go to temple every every Saturday. I mean, these are the people that pray three times a day. I mean, these are these are the people that offer sacrifices, that celebrate the festivals and the feast. I mean, these are religious people. And you would think that if there would have been any crowd that, that would have gotten excited and said, man, here's a man whose life can be changed. Let's work together to get this man to Jesus. Instead, what do they do? They probably pressed in a little bit closer. So they couldn't get in. But these guys didn't give up. Because the way Luke describes it is, he says they climbed up on the roof and tore away the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. Now, in the more wealthier homes, Jewish homes, you would have a staircase that led up to the second story. The second story would be a flat roof, and you could spend time up there during the cool of the day. I have a feeling that a fisherman's house was not built like that. This was probably a thatched roof type of house. And so it had a pitched roof, and you can imagine how difficult that would have been, throwing ropes over, climbing up yourself, pulling the guy up. Uh, Ron, I, I, you know, uh, I, maybe a sermon sometime you need to preach is the faith of the man. You know, because if you have friends like I got friends, they, they'd have got me up on the roof and then let go of me just see how far I'd roll, you know, before I stopped. You, y'all got friends like that? You know, so I think it took a whole lot of faith for them to, you know, for me, with friends I got, you know, raise, you know, get me up on top of the roof, tear the roof off, and lower it down. Well, the simple truth that you learn from that is just the simple act of cooperation. If this church wants to reach people with the gospel, you've got to set aside your selfishness. 
and work together cooperatively to reach people with the gospel. See, in every church, I mean, we're, we're family. And then when you've been in the church a while, you find that niche that you really like. You know, there's that ministry that you like, and, and, and it becomes important because it's ministered to you. You know, maybe your life has, has really been changed through it, and so you, you get really connected to that ministry. Well, then, you know, there's another ministry over here, and another ministry over here, and another ministry over here, and you're niched into this ministry, and then it comes time to talk about budget. And our ministry is not going to get as much as this ministry, or our ministry doesn't get as much attention. Why, why we did a whole service promoting this ministry, you hadn't mentioned our ministry in weeks. And we get what? In the church, very territorial, don't we? Some of y'all laughing. I mean, I, I don't know anything about your church, but I probably know everything about your church, because people are people. And if I get a little close, a little too close, just say, oh me. Instead of saying amen, go, oh me. Alright? Don't mean to get too close. Don't run me out of here on a rail. But I just know how churches are. You know, I've pastored churches a long, 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 long time. Not as long as uh, Brother Steele back there, but I'm, I'm riding his coattails. So, I, you know, I know churches. I know people. I'll tell you this. I love the church. I didn't grow up in church. So I'm going to chase a little rabbit here just so you know where I'm coming from. I didn't grow up in church. And when I finally got connected to church, I fell in love with the church. I love what it means. I love what it stands for. But because it's family, let's, let's admit it, we do things that sometimes are sort of silly. And one of those things is we get uncooperative. And all the while we're fighting about the color of carpet the cost of a pencil, we're tumping the world out on the ground. I'm going to learn you a new word, tump. We're tumping the world. That's an East Tennessee term. East Tennessee Appalachian term is you tump people. <laughs> I learn you all. My wife is just, she's, if she was here, she'd be, she'd be down in the pew. Just, you know. We do, don't we? All the while we're fighting about stuff. Some of the silliest things we get mad about, we, get, we, we fight about, and we argue about, and we'll, we'll spend just hours on something. I, I was in one business meeting at our church, and, and uh, we were talking about the security system in the church. And they spent, I don't know, 45 minutes arguing about, I forget what it was, you know, something about the the security system, we were having one put in, and, well, did we get 27 different bids, and, you know, all this kind of thing. And finally, one of, one, of, one of the men goes, well, Pastor, I'd like to know what you think about this. And I said, I wish you all would quit arguing about the insignificance so I could get up and preach the gospel. And they voted and quit. I mean, I was so frustrated because, I mean, we were arguing over just the most insignificant thing. Who cares if we got 27 different bids? You know, that's why we have this committee to do it. Let them do their job. Install the system and leave it alone, you know? What matters is, and what, what I was afraid of is, what if we'd have had a visitor that, that Wednesday night, or Sunday night, if you win the business meeting, well, what if we'd had a visitor and that person's sitting there listening to us, not realizing that's how family acts, 
But we're arguing about something and they go, well, gosh, I, I thought this was about Jesus. I didn't know it was about security systems. I've heard about eternal security. I didn't know it was about, you know, security systems. But it taught the church a very valuable lesson. In fact, we actually got to where we stopped having business meetings, except when we had a particular vote we needed to take, because we realized, man, we... We, we, we lost our perspective on the lostness of our city. Well, it just takes cooperation. And what I'd encourage you to do is, is make that a point of, of contention for yourself to say that I'm going to have a cooperative spirit so that when we go out to reach our city with the gospel, that I'm the first person to split to the side, to get to the side so that we can get them to Jesus. What do we got to do to get somebody to Jesus? Well, we got to work together to get them. You can't do it yourself anymore. It's going to take this whole church to do that, to reach this city. And so, work together to do that. All right. Well, what else? What's the last thing? Well, you got to have commitment because it's going to be tough to reach people with the gospel. you got to cooperate because it's going to take all of us to get the job done. Last thing it demands of you is cost. Now, here's where we get to the practical side. Uh, Simon Peter, I love Simon Peter. I identify more with Simon than I do the other disciples because I, I don't know how any of you guys have. I have the, uh, the foot and mouth disease, you know. I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. And that was Simon Peter. Well, I can imagine. Now, this is, this is somewhat speculation, but I can imagine that when uh, those guys are tearing off that roof and they're lowering that friend down, Simon Peter's sitting there thinking, who's going to pay for the roof? I mean, think about it. I, I, I bet you that was going through his mind, just knowing how the Bible introduces it. I mean, the truth is, somebody had to pay for the roof. The roof was, was destroyed. So somebody was going to have to get back up there and fix it and pay for it. There's always a cost. Now... If all the cost was in reaching people for the gospel was money, that'd be an easy thing. We'd just take up another offering, you sing another song, and uh, do like uh, some, one of the first church I ever pastored, uh, they passed the plate and somebody didn't give and he passed it again and the guy didn't give and he said, well, if you're that bad off, why don't you take some? And that was my first introduction to, to, to an offering for someone that pastored his first church, uh, had never grown up in church, didn't know how things were. I was a little bit taken by that. So all of it is is money. You just pass the plate and we'll, we'll, we'll lift an offering until we get enough. I mean, that's easy. Throw a couple of bucks in the plate, win everybody to Jesus, I'm good. But see, there's a far greater cost to that, and you know that. Uh, there's the cost of convenience. I mean, it took a lot for you guys to be here tonight. Y'all got a science test tomorrow. I don't know if y'all know that or not. My te- your teacher called me. That's why she's doing her homework. She's see. I'm just joking. Y'all don't have a test tomorrow. I'm just I'm just joking with y'all. But I mean, you gave up social time. I appreciate these students being here because you gave up social time. You gave up. School time, and you gave up a lot of stuff to be here tonight. I mean, it costs you something to be here. You adults, it costs you something to be here. You know, it costs you something to be here. So there, there's that cost of convenience. Well, to be a witness today sometimes is difficult, and there's that, that convenience cost where if I don't know how to witness, if you're afraid to witness, 
you know, maybe it is that you need to get some training on how to witness. Maybe you need to be given tools. Well, to learn those tools takes time. And so there's a, a cost to that. But if it's just a cost of convenience, we, we can work that out. We'll figure out a little bit of time to give. But I think the biggest cost is going to be the cost of criticism. Isn't it interesting? Let me, let me kind of let you off, off the hook a little bit. Most of us don't witness because we're afraid. And the reason why we are afraid is because we don't understand spiritual warfare. You think about it, we can... I fly a lot, and so a great time to witness is when you're on an airplane with somebody. You've got to sit next to you and for a four-hour flight. I've got, I got to fly to California here in a couple of weeks, and, and I'll have somebody sitting next to me for four and a half hours. Well, they ain't going nowhere, you know? And, and so it's a great time to witness... But we can sit there and we can talk about sports. We can talk about uh, politics. I, 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 I don't know if you all know this. I went to Yale and I got me a jacket and bought it and then I came home. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was wearing that jacket one day and a guy got on an airplane next to me wearing a Harvard jacket. So I got this Yale jacket, and he's got this Harvard jacket, and so it was a rather interesting discussion, because he really did go to Harvard, you know? <laughs> so, we, you can talk about stuff like that. You can talk about everything, and you don't mind talking about stuff, even things you disagree on, and then, man, the Holy Spirit's just all over you, saying you need to say something to Him about Jesus, and you start to, and you just clam up, and you wonder, why am I so afraid? It is because at the moment that you begin to share your faith, you enter into a spiritual battle. So don't beat yourself up over the fact that you're afraid to witness. Every time you sense that fear, it is because you are wrestling with the souls of men and women. And there is a battle that goes on. Well, what we've got to do, that's why cooperation is so very important. See, here's something I'll challenge you to do. This challenge I'll give to the students. You notice it took four people to get one friend to Jesus. All right, there's four, eight, twelve, about fourteen of you here tonight. But I know you all got several more to go. Why don't four of you get together and identify several friends that you have, that you mutually have. And, and say, let, you know, where are they spiritually? And then why don't we get together and we're going to pray for them by name. And then we're going to build a, a relationship with them. And through that relationship, just tell them about our story of how, how each of us came to Christ. And you do it together. It's a whole lot easier together than it is by yourself. That's why cooperation is so important. I, I, I would in, encourage you adults to do that. You know, get together in, in small groups and identify people. In, in fact, do this. Make a list of ten people that live here in Moundsville that you don't know their spiritual condition. And then get together in groups of four and begin praying for those ten individuals and then strategize, how can we reach that person with the gospel? 
How can we demonstrate love to them? How can we build a relationship with them? How can we show them that Christ is alive? What can they see in us? What can we do to minister to them? How can we be there during a day of crisis or a time of difficulty and minister to them? And then through that, you introduce them to Jesus Christ. We've seen... A number of people come to faith in Christ through disaster relief because the question that we get asked all the time is, why are you doing this? Well, what a great introduction. I mean, you don't have to do anything at that point. Man, it's just, well, let me, I'll tell you why. Go out and minister to people. Love on people. Don't do... You know, a lot of churches get involved in, in social ministry that is far more social than it is gospel. And so make sure that what you're doing offers the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, build relationships with people. You know, there there are all kinds of people out there here in Moundsville. They're never going to darken the door of the church. I mean, nowadays, I don't know how it is in Moundsville, but places I've been, they don't even do funerals in churches anymore. They don't do weddings in churches anymore. I mean, people are not are very disconnected with the church. So we as a church have got to pay the price. There is a cost to building relationships with people outside of the church to love them, to care about them, to minister to them, and then to set a specific time to say, I'm going to share my faith with this person. And yes, there are going to be those that are going to reject you. I wish I could tell you, everybody's going to, you know, all the students at school, all of them are going to love you because you, you try to live the Christian life. That's not going to happen. I guarantee you there are some, some fellow students that you have tonight that are sitting at home wondering tonight if life is worth living. They're pondering about tomorrow. And they don't know about Jesus. They don't know the reality of who He is. And God has appointed you guys to have the opportunity to build a relationship with that person and love that person, care about that person, and to tell them why you care about them. And that's true for everybody in here. You'll get criticized. I'll go ahead and tell you that. There'll be people that'll fuss at you. You know, you try to win family to Christ, I can guarantee you there's no filter when it comes... I don't know how your family is. There's no filter in my family. And, and, and they'll say whatever they got to say, so you'll offend them. But the thing is, I would rather offend somebody and eventually see them in heaven than never offend them and watch them go to hell. That's the urgency. So, Jesus gives us an example of caring about the one individual. You know, you think about, here's a house full of folks... And here's one guy again. It seems like so many of the, the things we've looked at this week have been about that, that one. There's the multitude, but there's that one. Who's that person that's in your family, that's in your relationships who doesn't know Jesus? Make the commitment tonight to say, I'll do whatever i got to do to get them the gospel. Cooperate, work with others to get the gospel to them. Pay the price, whatever it costs, to get them the gospel. And through that, we'll become missional Christians, but through that, we'll see our friends and our family come to faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank You for uh, what Your Word teaches us and the encouragement that we have. And pray tonight that, that, Father, that tonight... 
would be that night that we would recommit ourselves to share our faith with our friends and our family. I pray for this church and, Lord, overwhelm them with your presence, with your power, with your love, with all that you are and all that you do, Father, and remind them that your hand is still on them, your blessing is still with them, and may they develop that missional spirit to say, I'll do whatever i got to do to get my friends, my family, to Jesus. And it's in your name, our Savior, that I pray.